Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to put it up on the screen so that you can follow along with it. This chapter follows the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we've been, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, for the last three weeks. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you a heads up on where we're heading today. The last three weeks have been pretty heavy, right? It feels like we've been under surgery the last three weeks. When you come in and the Holy Spirit's doing work and you're reading through the Beatitudes and you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, week after week, you feel like, oh, this is a lot. It feels really good, but man, this is a lot. So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna, there, there's going to be a response. There's gonna be a way at the end where we say, okay, I've heard the truth and now I have to respond to the truth. But the majority of our time today is gonna be spent beholding the authority and power of Jesus. All right? So I'm not going to spend a lot of time pulling in um, an application, and here's what this means for you, and here's how Today, we're going to spend the bulk of our time just staring at Jesus, beholding his authority and power, and watching what he does with that authority and power. All right? So here's what we're going to do. Matthew chapter 8, we go in, and he comes off of the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down from the mountain, and the first thing he does is he starts healing people left and right. And what I want you to see is who he heals, or who Matthew tells us he's healing. He heals in, these, in this chapter a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. Now, what's important about the leper and the Gentile and the woman were that these were the three folks in Jewish society who were seen as the powerless or the outsiders. So what I want you to watch is how Jesus uses his authority and his power, how he leverages all of heaven's authority and power for the powerless and the outsiders. Okay? So Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. Let's go. It says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper... A leper is a person with, an, uh, uh, with, with leprosy. It's a skin disease. And essentially what it does, it, uh, it, it attacks your organs and uh, it, it, is, it essentially rots your organs to the point where you, like fingers fall off, extremities fall off. It was, um, there was no cure for it. It was essentially a death sentence. Jewish law required a lot of rules and laws about essentially what happened when you caught leprosy. Also other skin diseases, but especially leprosy. It essentially, it essentially meant that you had to live on your own. No more physical contact. You can't touch people. You can't get close to them. You can't have conversations. As a matter of fact, the only thing that you're saying on a regular basis when you walk out in public is when you walk down the street, according to Jewish law, you had to shout out of the top of your lungs, I'm a leper. I'm a leper. Steer clear of me. I'm a leper. Because you'll catch what I have. It was the most lonely death sentence of a life you could possibly imagine. And Jewish law said you can't touch. You can't go close to. It'll make you unclean. They're outsiders, even though they may have been insiders at one time. So Jesus comes off of the mountain, he comes up and there's this leper there. The leper came up and he knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Whoa, Jesus, you can't be doing that. You can't be touching sick people. You can't be getting close to sick people. You can't do that. Well, he does it. 
And as soon as he touches them, he says, I will be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. And then Jesus says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Let's pause right there. So Jesus finishes teaching about the kingdom and he comes down off of the mountain and the first person to respond to Jesus' message about transformation, the Beatitudes, about this new way of living, about this new society, this new, new, this new persona, this new way to walk in obedience to Jesus, the first person to respond is a person who has been told you can't come close. The first person to respond to Jesus' message is a leper. And the first thing this leper says when he comes up is he confesses that he acknowledges that Jesus has all authority and all power. And in that authority and power, Jesus has the ability to make this guy whole and clean, to heal something that could not be healed. This guy declared, I'm, man, you got it, you're, you're him. I know you're him, you're it. You're the one we've been waiting for. And, and, and all you gotta do is want for me to be healed. So I'm asking you, can you want it? Can you do it? And Jesus is like, yeah, I will. Now that is amazing in and of itself, right? That we could come to the Lord, he knows our desires, and he doesn't turn us away. He doesn't say, nah, you need that. Or you're not worthy. Or come and ask me tomorrow, I'm busy today. Now when you come to the Lord, his response is that he hears your cry, he knows what's on your heart, and, and he responds like a good father. But what I want to, I mean, that's amazing, but what I want to touch after that is that after he touches him and heals him, he gives him a command. He sends them to the priest, and he says, I want you to go to the priest, and I want you to offer the gift that Moses commanded. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's referencing a command from Leviticus 14. And Leviticus 14 is a chapter um, in the Old Testament that covers the instructions for how someone who had a skin disease and was considered out, cast out of society uh, within Jewish culture, how they could now re-enter back into culture. They had a responsibility that if you had some form of skin disease that kept you out and made you unclean, once that skin disease was healed, now keep in mind, leprosy couldn't be healed, but there were some skin diseases that could, once you were healed, you had to go and present yourself to the priest and you had to follow these two steps. There were two steps. You had to first get clean before the people and then you had to get clean before the Lord. And both of these things were symbolic. And Leviticus 14 walks us through what these steps are. So in order to get clean before the people, what Jesus is telling this guy to do is I want you to go and find a priest. And when the priest verifies that you are indeed healed, you don't have the skin disease anymore, the priest is then gonna ask you to present the gift. And here's the gift. You're supposed to go and you're supposed to get two doves, right? <clears throat> before the priest, you're supposed to take these two doves. You're supposed to take the first one and you're supposed to kill it and you're supposed to let the blood from the dove drip into a wooden bowl. And I want you to take the wooden bowl with the blood in it, I want you to pour some water in it, some holy water, and now what you got in that wooden bowl is a mixture of water and blood. Now what I want you to do is I want you to take that other dove that you didn't kill, I want you to take it, I want you to dip it in the water and the blood solution, and I want you to let it go and let it fly away. 
And the reason why you do that is because that is the symbolic process, according to Leviticus 14, that lets the person who has been healed publicly display to the entire uh, community, nation of Israel, that I was once riddled with sin, riddled with sickness, cast out, but now I am pure, I am clean, and I am free. But it doesn't stop there. Because the next thing he has to do is he's gotta take uh, a ram. Uh, not a ram, a lamb. He takes the lamb and he sacrifices the lamb before the priest and the priest takes the blood from the sacrifice and he calls the guy up close and he takes, um, the, the priest takes a little bit of the blood from the lamb and he puts it on the guy's right ear and then he smears it on the guy's uh, right thumb and then he smears it on the guy's right toe and this was a symbolic gesture that you are now not only clean before the people but you are now clean before the Lord, and not just clean, now also consecrated in your hearing, and everything that you touch for the Lord, and in all of your going, and your walking, and your doing, as unto the Lord on a daily basis. And at that point, you are now clear and clean before all the people, and clear and clean before God, and you are no longer an outsider, you are now back in the family. Now, the question is, why did Jesus ask this guy to go through this whole process? Jesus is here. He's fulfilling the law. He's got his healing. Why does he need to go before the priests and do all this stuff? Because when this guy, who had an incurable skin disease, came before the priest to proclaim that he was clean and to follow the law of Moses, the fact that he was there proclaimed in a very profound way that something better than Moses has arrived. That's why Jesus told him to do that. Because Jesus is not just proclaiming on the mountaintop, he's proclaiming to the priests, but in a priestly way too. This was the priest's way to say, hold on, wait, you had, a, you had what? And now you, like that doesn't happen. This is an invitation for the priest to say, no, 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 I, I, take me to the guy who did this. I gotta know more, because this sounds a whole lot like the guy we've been waiting for. That's the invitation for the priest, to treat this like a moment of realization and awaking. It was an invitation. Hey, the thing we've been waiting for, the greater than Moses, it's finally here. But for the people who are convinced that there's nothing greater than Moses, they will see this, and they will wanna argue about the finer points and whether you're actually healed or not. Okay, we'll go through the motions, but, but I don't, I'm not really interested on the actual healing because what's more important is that we actually do all of the strict law stuff. You, you see the, the, the interesting way Jesus is doing this? He's proclaiming to every person the way they need to hear that he's here and he has all authority and all power. So after he presents himself, what we see as we're reading it now in hindsight, is that Jesus, yes, he had authority over leprosy, and the proclamation was to the priests something better than Moses is here. But we start to see why Jesus was doing healings in the first place. Because at some point, okay, the guy got healed from leprosy, but have you ever thought that like at some point um, later, in his, maybe 10 years later, maybe 20 years later, he died? He died anyway? So okay, he lived 20 years of his life without leprosy. That's good news, I guess, but he still died. 
So is there some way we can like overcome death? Because that seems to me like an even greater healing than not having to walk 20 years as a leper. Because when you're turning 3 billion years old in heaven because we're living for eternity, that 20 years as a leper doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. You follow? So what we see is the whole reason why Jesus is doing these healings in the first place. He's healing the people because he loves them and he wants to pull them out of the predicament. But more than that, the healing was a sign, not just to the priest, but to the people that I have the power over diseases, but the biggest disease you have is not actually leprosy. The biggest disease you have is the cancer of sin that's riddled deep in your bones and it's making you wanna hate and reject God when you think you're loving and serving him. That's the problem. So leprosy is really just a parable for what happens on the inside of us. Sin is the kind of thing that makes you an outsider to God's kingdom. It's the kind of thing that, that, that is highly contagious. And when you get around other folks, sin likes to spread in the lives of others. And so Jesus is proclaiming with this miracle and the rest of them, hey, look, I'm here to heal diseases, but the only reason why I'm healing diseases is so that you have eyes to see that I'm healing the greater disease, which is sin in your bones, and that is gonna keep you uh, from having sickness in eternity and being punished for eternity. So when he stands there and he says, you're healed, he's not just saying, you're healed. He's saying, you're healed, you're whole in your mind. Jesus has the power over leprosy, but he also has the power over sin and death. And that is the good news. Because he may heal your bones right now, but unless he's redeeming you, those bones are going to be sent to hellfire when you die if something has not been changed about what happens on the inside of you about reconciling all that sin garbage in your life. Now let's jump to, to verse five. So he's healed this leper, now he's gonna heal the centurion. I'm gonna go five through 17. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover uh, the centurion and Peter's mother-in-law. This is when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, so this is a Roman guard, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and I will heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does that. And the only reason why I have that authority is because I'm under the authority of Rome. I can say to these people, do this, and their obedience to me is not just obedience to me, it's obedience to something greater. Now that'll preach, right? Because that's essentially what we're all doing here. And that's why Jesus in a minute marveled because he's among his own people and nobody gets it that Jesus has submitted to the authority of the Father and that's why he has authority walking the earth. And, the, and, and that principle we think, well, I, uh, I could take it or leave it. No, no, there's a, there's authority when you walk in the submission of the walking in the ways that he does things. Uh, if you're wondering like, man, I just don't feel um, like I have much leg to stand on or authority in, in my own home. Like when I say stuff, like no one even listens to me. Is it possible that the reason why no one is listening to the authority you have in your own home, even as the father of your home, is because you're refusing to submit to the authority that Jesus has over you? Is the authority issue that you have in your home maybe connected 
to a, the fact that you have an authority issue problem that you don't like submitting to people and maybe your kids are picking up on that. I told you I wasn't gonna go into that, I apologize. <laughs> look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. So when Jesus heard this, he marveled and he said to those following him, truly I say to you, no one in Israel have I found with such faith. This guy gets it. And he's on the outside. You know, let me tell you, um, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know, in, in, in eternity, there's gonna be a lot of folks who are not Jewish. And the sons of the kingdom, the ones who thought they were on the inside, the ones that had a lock, they're gonna be thrown out of outer darkness if they refuse to accept the authority of Jesus. And in that place, there's gonna be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurions, uh, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. Now I'll go to 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits in a word and he healed all who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So Matthew, and I told you when we started this book, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience and essentially what he's saying is, hey, this is the guy we've been waiting for. Remember when Isaiah talked about the suffering servant and all the stuff he would do? Hey, look, Jesus is doing that. Let's put two and two together. He's the guy. Let's start following him. Let's submit to him. This is God's plan. It's been God's plan all along. It may not have been your plan, but let's submit to this and not what you think. This is what, this, that's, that's the Jewish way of what uh, Matthew is telling the, the um, first century Jewish folks. But what is interesting to me is that when I see Jesus healing the centurion and then healing Jesus' mother, the thing that stands out to the centurion to me is this guy was a Gentile, he was an outsider, but he called Jesus Lord, he cared about his servant and he understood authority. And the authority is referring to about Jesus being under the authority of the Father. That's mentioned in Matthew eleven twenty seven, John three thirty five, John thirteen three, John seventeen two, Ephesians one twenty through twenty one. The idea that Jesus submitted to authority and therefore had authority—that's where it comes from. Okay. Now Jesus marveled at this guy and prophesied about many Gentiles coming. But but the the, the beauty of this was that man he healed this Gentile servant and it, and it happened immediately. Now for me, the, 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 the beauty of this is you got Jesus healing this, out, this leper, this unknown guy, right? He just comes out of the crowd. He's also healing the centurion who just kind of comes up, but he doesn't just stop there. He's not just healing strangers. He's healing the disciples' family members. Now I'm sure it was amazing to be there when the leper was healed and the centurion. If you're a disciple, you're like, you know, you're Peter, you're Matthew, and you're like, man, Jesus, this is awesome. This is so cool to watch him, you know. But then you go home and, and, and your family's sick. And there's a little part of you just like, man, man, God, you're doing this, all the stuff outside this, I'm like, you do this in my own home? Like, I see you working and doing all these things. You're always working out here. Man, could you like move in my home? My little girl's sick and I don't know what to do. Here's good news. Just like Jesus is walking from town to town, knocking on the doors of strangers, and saying, hey, the kingdom of God's at hand. I'm here. He's also coming to your home, knocking on your door. Now, here's the beauty of the way Jesus does it. 
He doesn't stand in the street corner. He's not out at your mailbox shouting, I'm here. Let me in. I'm Jesus for my sake. He's not shouting and screaming and holding a banner and a a, a sign on the side of the road shouting a car's honking at him. No, he's, he's, he's not boldly proclaiming and screaming in people's faces. You know what he's doing? He's going from town to town, person to person, heart to heart, and just knocking. And he's doing that right now. And that's the beauty of this. Because what he's doing in us, in the people of God, is not just for some stranger. He's absolutely saving strangers out there, and those strangers will become family, and that is good news. But he's not stopping there. He's knocking. And if you hear the knock and you respond to him initiating relationship with you, and you invite him into your home, you're gonna see that he's moving among your children, and he's, 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 he's moving among your spouse, and he's moving your, among your kids, and he's accomplishing things in your kids that you couldn't accomplish on the best day with some of the best rules. You follow? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you got parents, or some of you have teenagers and kids. Those of you that are parents, you know what I'm talking about. You can't legislate enough rules to get the obedience that you want. Because deep down in, that, in their heart is the same thing that's deep down in your heart. I don't want to. Why? I don't know. I just don't want to. Because I didn't think of it. That's why. Oh, you know, I mean, it's funny. You start understanding what it's like for the father to parent us when you start parenting your own children. You're like, oh, God, is this what I'm like? He's like, yeah, but worse. <laughs> Way worse. Because we're just talking about dishes. We're talking about like, the lust of the heart and the lust of the flesh, like all kinds of stuff over here. Your issues are way worse than not doing the dishes. So the invitation is not just for out there. And that's the beauty of it. We can be convinced as Christians that like what happens when God is moving only takes place in the proper ministry uh, context, right? If you want to see God move, you come on Sunday morning and he's moving in the music and he's moving in the worship. But that's not the, that's not the promise, That is part of the promise. He will move among his people when we gather and we lift them up. But the promise is also that he comes home with you, that he moves in the living room and around the dinner table and he moves in the kitchen while you're cooking and he moves in the bedrooms while you're studying at night or early in the morning when you wake up. He's in your homes if you respond to the knock. The problem is many of us are too busy or too proud to open the door. And that is where we go with the next section of verses. Go to verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe, so somebody who is knowledgeable in the word, came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that sounds like a nice sentiment. Well, that was nice of him. He's letting Jesus know that he's going to follow him wherever he's going. But essentially what he's doing, if you look at Jesus' response and also the person that comes after, Matthew is telling us this for a reason. Not because the motives of this guy's heart was like, man, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. That's not why Matthew includes this. Matthew includes this because he's saying, hey, there were lots of crowds around Jesus, but don't fool yourself. Not all those people were real disciples. A lot of those people showed up just for the show. A lot of those people showed up just to prove to Jesus how devoted they actually were. A lot of those people showed up to let Jesus know that they would follow him, but not right now, I'll do it later. The crowd was filled with all kinds of people, and so Matthew was letting us know one of the people that showed up and said, hey Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. It's almost like they're giving Jesus, um, 
kind of a heads up, hey, look, um, I'm gonna follow you wherever you go, and and since I'm a scribe, you're lucky to have me. And I'll follow you everywhere you go, and, 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 and I'm gonna prove my worth to you. At the end of the day, you're gonna be like, man, I'm sure glad he's on my team because I could not have accomplished it without this guy. Man, it's gonna be awesome, Jesus. Just, I'm gonna follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' response is like, look, man, <sighs> foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, look, you, you, you gotta understand, if you follow me, you're gonna be homeless. That's what's gonna happen when you follow me. There's no pride in it. There's no showing that you're more devoted than me. There's no big ministry. There's no um, uh, limousine and plane. There's no uh, um, compensation for like enough outfits so that when you're standing in front of everybody, you look the part. There's none of that. And you know what you get when you follow me? You get nothing. You get to be homeless. So just strictly talking, worldly possessions, the only promise you get is diddly squat. But if we're talking from eternal perspective, what you get when you follow Jesus is you get him. You get him. So then another guy comes up to him and he says, he says another disciple comes up and says, Lord, um, let me first go bury my father. Oh, that's a nice sentiment. Of course, certainly. Who am I to stop you and the funeral? Unless that's not actually what he's saying. He said, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Now you could read this as a guy who's just genuine saying I've got some funeral arrangements or you can read it um, as a popular idiom that was common in the Middle East. And um, an idiom is essentially just shorthand. It's a cultural way of saying th- some things. Like a perf- uh, example would be like uh, if we said in our culture like uh, ah, that's a dime a dozen or you just gotta bite the bullet. No one's telling you to go literally bite a bullet. Right, what we're saying is get through it man. I know it's tough, but just bite the bullet. In the Middle East, there was a common idiom where you would say, gotta go bury my father. And it was a way to put off the work that needed to be done today to go handle this, because essentially what you're saying is, my dad isn't dead, but he is getting old and he's probably gonna die soon, and I need to get close to him to attend to the matters of the family so that I can get my inheritance. I gotta be found as a good son at the end of the age, the his, his end of his life. It, i to make sure that he knows that I was there so I can get my inheritance. But when I have my inheritance, Jesus, I'm yours. I'll be there. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You ain't got time to follow me tomorrow. Follow me right now. Let the dead bury the dead. Let the dead value the things that they value because what I'm calling you to is to value something completely different. So leave that aside and come follow me. Now, this is where we're gonna get to the end here. We're gonna read... Um, Matthew 8, 23 through the end. And I'm reading these stories together for a reason because in my study this week, I found an interesting um, idea of how they're connected. um, And I'd like to present it to you as uh, something to kind of just um, think on as we reflect about the authority and the power of Jesus in all circumstances. So let's go to Matthew 8, 23. So after all this, they got into the boat. His disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he rose and look what he did. He rebuked the winds and the sea. And then there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? So they, they get to the other side of the sea, the same story. So they get to the other side, and they get out of the boat off of this ocean, or uh, the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And when they came to the other side, to the country of the Ger- Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. So fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, as soon as they saw Jesus, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? That's interesting. So the kingdom of hell knows what's coming. And a lot of times we know what's coming, but we don't act like we know what's coming. Verse 30, now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged them, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. region. There's no gratitude there because these people valued the pig business over people being set free. Now here's why I read these two things together because as I was reading and preparing this week, I found some interesting studies about Um, this is just kind of a theory, but I I like it, so I'm gonna present it to you, about the storm. The way that Matthew describes the storm, he uses some very specific choice Greek words that he only uses in other places later to reference a specific end-time apocalyptic event. So when he talks about the storm, he uses this Greek word seismos, and it literally means earthquake. So what they're saying is we're in this boat and the whole, not just the, not just the storm, but it was like an earthquake was shaking. And this word is used again when Matthew describes the apocalyptic upheavals that are gonna happen in the end times in Matthew 24, seven, Matthew 27, 54, and Matthew 28, two. So this storm that was scaring very seasoned fishermen, according to Matthew, had some spiritual undertones, according to the words that Matthew chose. And then when Jesus deals with the storm, we're told that he rebukes the storm. And the word that is used there, rebuke, epitomeo, is the same word that is used by the other writers of the New Testament to describe an exorcism, to cast demons out. It's used in Mark 1.25, 9.25, Luke 4.41. And I find this interesting because these stories are, are paired right before the story about Jesus casting the demons out of these men. So they get out of this ocean, or this lake, Sea of Galilee, that Matthew describes as some spiritual, significant, dark kingdom of darkness kind of event. It was almost like demonic forces were trying to take these dudes out, or at least scare them on a good day. They get out of the ocean, they come to the other side, to this place where these two guys are demon-possessed, living among the dead, and hanging out with a bunch of pigs, which are considered unclean. So this is definitely not Jewish territory. So they go to the other side of the lake and they have this experience with these demonic spirits. 
Now, I'm reading these together because what I think is happening is Matthew is giving us a clue about the reality of the kingdom of darkness. Why? And why am I underscoring it and reading this way? Because I think it would be important for us to just take a moment to remember that there is a physical realm and a spiritual realm. And you can pretend like there's not a spiritual realm, but that's not biblical. There are two realms at work. And the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, we're told, influences a lot of the things that we see in the physical realm. And this is mentioned a lot. In Genesis 3, we're told that essentially sin entered the world because Satan, an agent of this demonic spiritual realm, tempted God's creation. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us we need to be sober-minded and watchful because the devil likes to prowl around us. Ephesians 6, 11 warns against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 2, 2 tells us that darkness is at work in the sons of disobedience. So we are told that to ignore the spiritual realm and live like the only enemy we have is our own sin is not biblical. One of your greatest enemies is sin, which is why Jesus had to conquer it. But to, to live like there is not a demon, a, a devil, uh, and, and demonic forces at work influencing um, things like individuals and cultures and entire nations is ignorant. The reality of it is we live in a world where this, this kingdom, there are two kingdoms, there's a kingdom of light, there's a kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of darkness has an influence over this world because the kingdom of darkness likes to prey on our sin nature, and that's how it works. So when you refuse to repent and turn from darkness in here, you're essentially, in a way, leaving a back door for the enemy to come in to exploit that part of you that has not been surrendered to Jesus for his purposes to build his kingdom. That is why it is so crucial for us to do the work of allowing the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and walk in repentance to things that have nothing to do with God's kingdom because the longer you leave those things out there, the more the enemy will exploit them and use you for his purposes. Now, I am not saying this invitation for us to all start turning into some kind of like weird, like bizarro, charismatic, like spiritual warfare people and we start walking around and act like now it's our job to start taking demons on head on. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there is one in the universe who has all authority and all power. It is Jesus and we serve him. And if the truth and the reality from what we see in the scriptures is that we serve him and he's over that, then that reality, even though it does exist, should not scare us or paralyze us to inaction. It is real, it does exist, but it doesn't mean a whole lot because Jesus has authority over it all. You follow? Now why do I say this? I say this because as we read Matthew chapter eight, a couple things are very apparent. It is clear that Jesus came to heal people and that healing is in his wheelhouse and we should pray for each other to be healed but even more so in his wheelhouse 
is overcoming sin and death. That's the big message. But he didn't just come to heal a few people and save a few people. What he came to do is to rule over all creation, to judge all evil, and to save all his people. And when I started this message telling us that what we were going to do today was spend a little bit of time just beholding his authority and his power, that's what I mean. Jesus has all authority and all power over every sickness that has ever been and will be. He has all authority over every sin that has ever existed or will take place in the future. He rules and reigns over all of it. But he is returning to set up his rule long term on the new heaven and the new earth and we are invited to join in on that but even more than that, he will not just be setting up his own kingdom and healing us. He will be bringing judgment to those who rebel against God who want nothing to do with him, that hate God, and he is going to send the devil and all of his demons into an eternal punishment of hell. That is coming. There is coming an eternal punishment for everyone that rejects Jesus. That is the kind of thing that we should behold and rearrange our lives around. So here's, and I said at the end, we're gonna do just a a quick little response. What do I do with that, okay? That's good. We could hard, I could put a period on it, we could pray and close right now, and that's enough. It's enough to know that Jesus is over it all, he has all authority and all power, but most of us walked in here knowing that we just needed a refresher. What do I do with that information? How do I respond? For some of you, knowing that information, being reminded of that, means that you leave this place and you leave fear at the door. Don't bring it home with you. Stop. Stop living in fear. Matthew 8 reminds you there is literally nothing on this earth that is greater than him. (coughs) But for some of us, you're not struggling with fear. That's not a thing you worry about. You are walking in faith. You're not struggling with that. So what do you do with that? This is how I want to close with If Matthew 8 tells us that all authority and all power is what Jesus holds and what he chooses to do with that is he leverages it for those with no power and those who are weak. And the proper response is found in Philippians 2, 1, 8. I just want to read this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, just, just listen. I don't even have this up on the screen. If there's any comfort from love, any participate in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accordance of one mind. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? That means Jesus never threw the fact that he was God in the faces of his disciples. They're sitting around the campfire, and Peter's like, ah, something funny happened to me the other day. He tells a story, and Jesus is like, well, I did invent the concept of funny. That's mine. So, 
They walk into a, ta- a restaurant. I want that table in the back. I'm sorry, it's taken. Yeah, but I'm, I'm God, so can you get them to move? I'm more important. He never, even though he was, he never considered equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, what he did was he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. So what are we doing here? We're standing here beholding the beauty and the power and the authority of Jesus. And for some of us, that means when I walk away, what I'm gonna do with what I saw is I'm gonna let fear go because there's literally nothing for me to be afraid of if that is how much power and authority he's walking in. And for the rest of us, when I stare at that, it is an encouragement for me to do what he did. If he had all that authority and all the power and he leveraged it for those who were weak and on the outside, then I have no choice but to do the same. And when I leave this place this week in work and school, what I must do is take all of the gifts and talents that he has given me and just like Jesus leveraged those for those with no power, I'm going to do the same for me. I'm going to stop using all of my gifts and talents and resources to feed my ego and do my own thing. I'm going to leverage those those things for the people around me and I'm gonna serve those who are powerless on the outside because what I want more than feeling good is bringing folks into the kingdom of God. Amen? That's where we're gonna close. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you wanna hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us and God bless.